Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the History of England, episode 371, Parliament Recalled. Now then, this week we're going to hear about yet another Parliament, would you believe? Incidentally, in a rather irrational burst of stubbornness, I've not called any of my episodes the sort of thing I should have been calling them, like the Short Parliament or the Bishop Wars, because, well, I don't know why really. But that is, of course, what we're talking about next, the Short Parliament. And incidentally, from another episode, there is a thing I found out which I need to share first of all. So I mentioned a while ago that Lord and Strafford were bosom pals who wrote to each other discussing political tactics and things. In the 1630s, they both agreed that, talented financial wizard though he was, Richard Weston was a little bit exasperating and somewhat overcautious. And they so they had a nickname for him. I didn't tell you what that nickname was... And a long-time listener, Mr C. Cat by name, threw his hands up at my teasing. Honestly, though, I wasn't teasing. I'd just forgotten and couldn't find the reference. Well, quite by chance, I then learned that Billy the Conch ship was called the Mora. And it turns out that Mora is Latin for delay. The ship was a present from his wife, Maud, though nobody knows why Maud would have called it such a thing. Nice idea for a Christmas present, though. I can imagine many people would like a fully manned warship, complete with horses and acclaimed to the King of England. You can have that idea on me. Well, that jogged a memory, and I remembered that Lady Mora is the missing nickname. Lord and Strafford called Treasurer Weston Lady Mora because of his dithering. Now, in terms of a useful fact, that probably scores quite low. I remember Sherlock Holmes tearing a strip off Watson once for telling him trivia 
and saying them that he'd try hard to forget it because the brain is like a box room, it can get full up. So, fill it with useful, not useless facts, Watson. This one then is probably a fact for deletion, but I have scratched the itch at least. So, after writing a quick note to Wentworth along the lines of Cathy come home, Charles trundled from York back to Whitehall. He entered the city with his entourage to be welcomed back by the good burghers of London, though once again he made a bit of a faux pas. He put a foot wrong. I mean, it would seem marginal to thee and me. He happened to use his mother-in-law's coach. Well, what of that? I hear you ask. Well, in this wildly febrile atmosphere, with suspicion about Charles's religious intentions running amok, there were reds under every bed, even those little put-me-up truckle beds. Well, popes rather than reds. The grandeur of Marie de Medici's Catholic coach got everyone thinking this again was a signal of Charles's inclinations. Seems a little harsh, to be fair. Charles had decided not to attend the Scottish General Assembly and the Parliament after all. You might think this was because he was confident of how it would go, or had reconciled himself to making the concessions they wanted, and so any old deputy could give away the farm after all. But the real reason was revealed in a letter from him to the Archbishop of St Andrews, where he revealed that as far as he was concerned, whatever happened at the Assembly was strictly temporary, because he was coming back with a bigger stick, and with that big stick all would be put right. Hamilton, on the other hand, by this stage was reluctant to return to Scotland because he had a better idea of what was going on, assessing the situation with some despair. Indeed, he actually wrote, My heart is broke since I can see no possibility to save our master's honour or the country from ruin. As a result, Charles was forced to rely on Trequair, who he didn't trust. As it happens, he was right not to trust Trequair, because Trequair made a right pig's bottom of the whole affair, appearing to approve all the decisions taken by the Assembly in the King's name before the King had heard about it. In religious terms, those things that he supposedly approved was pretty much as revolutionary a clean sweep as could be imagined. All the foundations of royal policy for the last 50 years, so hard won, were neatly piled up one by one, covered with petrol and thrown onto the bonfire of history. Whoosh! Bishops were deleted. The canons were deleted. The Book of Common Prayer, gone. High Commission, abolished. Five Articles of Perth made, no Articles of Perth. Men of the Kirk were excluded from secular offices, and maybe the biggest kicker in a way, the King's right to call General Assemblies was refuted. Whether the King liked it or not, the General Assembly would now meet every year and just do its thing. That same spirit was repeated in the Parliament as far as it got, Charles was livid with Traquair, of course. Covenanter propaganda was now flooding London's streets, and so Charles vented his spleen on the Scots by having a public hangman burn one of the sheets on the grounds that it was full of falsehood, dishonour and scandal. And he then declared all the Scots who had invaded England as arrant traitors who could be pardoned only if they acknowledged their crimes and begged for forgiveness. The force of compromise was not strong with this one. Meanwhile, 
Things in the north were going south, as it were. The parliament got going. The Covenanters then managed to take control of the process of drafting legislation through the Lords of the Articles. Now, this had been the surefire way the king controlled the Scottish Parliament and its agenda by controlling the Lords of the Articles. Or by clever manoeuvring, the Covenanters instead drafted a set of wildly revolutionary legislation, which we'll come to in the autumn and in 1641. It'll take that long because Charles tried to turn off the tap through his traditional route, dissolving Parliament, so that he could sort of, you know, sort things out first and be there when the big stick had been applied to various parts of the Scottish anatomy. But darn me, if the Scottish Parliament didn't simply refuse to be dissolved. In the end, after a lot of toing and froing, they agreed to be prorogued until June 1641. But in the meantime, they appointed a committee to manage Scottish affairs until the next Parliament met. Now, I have to tell you that the Scottish Revolution is every bit as revolutionary constitutionally as the later English one, or at least initially it was anyway. So now we've got a new innovation, a government or an executive appointed by a legislature. By golly, who de elbow? Wentworth arrived in London on September the 21st and Charles promptly fell on his neck. Well, I don't suppose he did that exactly. I think that only happens in 19th century Russian novels. But he really was very, very pleased to see him. He really needed Wentworth. He needed his strength, decisiveness and aggression to help bolster his determination to see off this hideous combination of events. Now that Wentworth was here, planning started on issue number one. How were they going to raise the money needed to put an army together to then reduce those Scottish rebels to obedience? Some plans were already afoot, and to a large degree, and an unfortunately large degree for Charles's reputation with his Protestant subjects, this plan relied on Catholics. Now, the faction with most influence at this point in court was the Spanish party. Hopefully you remember the discussion we had a while ago about the Patriot, Protestant and French party on the one hand and the Spanish-oriented party on the other. The correlation between Catholics at court and the Spanish party at court was not a direct one. So Wentworth, for example, was a thoroughgoing prot, though a member of the Spanish party. But others, like Cottington, Windbank and Arundel, they were indeed Catholic. But in the eyes of a general public obsessed and frantic about fears of a popish plot, many people just assumed that everybody in the Spanish party were all Catholic or crypto-Catholic. And as we've discussed before, for the radical Calvinists, Lord's love of ceremony, belief that salvation was not entirely predestined, both of these things marked him in their minds as a papist anyway, even if not a Catholic. The Spanish party therefore saw alliance with Spain as one possible route out of this conundrum. Wentworth was in the process of negotiating a loan with Spain of 100,000 quid, and maybe a full alliance would yield even more, and maybe the return of the Palatinate. Remember that old thing? Meanwhile, a series of favours might oil the wheels. So England had already delivered services to Spain. For example, five shiploads of Spanish soldiers had disembarked at Plymouth and they then marched all the way through southern England and then were going to take passage across the Straits to the Netherlands war on English ships. 
as it happens, this did not help them avoid the blockade. The Dutch under Admiral Trump stopped the ships and removed all the Spanish soldiers. This was humiliating enough for Charles. Then it was agreed that the Spanish could recruit 3,000 men from Ireland, and now, in September, they gave permission for 70 Spanish ships of war to take refuge in the Downs, after a rather sharp engagement with Admiral Trump of the Netherlands. You might remember that the Downs is a roadstead or an area of sheltered favourable sea, and it lies just off the coast of Kent. Meanwhile, the English ship money fleet came close and hovered by to provide protection for the Spanish ships taking refuge. Those fleets in the Downs became a public spectacle. People lined the cliffs to look, watch and wait and hope for a chance to line their pockets as well as the cliffs if a ship were to happen to run ashore. Admiral Trump waited for his moment and by October he was ready. One of his squadrons took a northern station that stopped the English from interfering. The other squadron attacked and set fire ships as well at the Spanish and Portuguese. Many of the Spanish ships were destroyed. Some beached themselves on purpose to avoid being boarded. They were then promptly ransacked by the waiting English. Spectators no more, now full participants. Others of the Spanish did manage to run the blockade and escape and land their soldiers in Spanish Netherlands. When the engagement was over, Trump fired the regulation 21-gun salute to recognise English sovereignty over the Downs and sailed merrily away. Now, there are three things about the Battle of the Downs. The first is that Charles does not appear in a good light anywhere during the whole episode. And at very least, here is an example of the harshest realpolitik, albeit an incompetent example, because here's what happened. First of all, he tried to take advantage of Spanish misery by demanding £150,000 to protect the Spanish fleet. 50000 up front, please. The poor old Spanish ambassador had kittens and fell to crossing himself and told me I demanded impossibilities. While he was trying to make the most of the Spanish bad fortune, Charles also approached France at the same time to see if they would pay even more in return for the English sacrificing the Spanish to the Dutch fleet. The Venetian envoy saw the whole affair and described it as an indication rather of imbecility than of magnanimous resolution. In fact, of course, the result was to demonstrate England's naval helplessness and humiliation for Charles and the Spanish party and the end of the prospect of a Spanish loan. England claimed that the Straits were sovereign territory and yet the Dutch had yet again flouted that authority while Charles's much-vaunted ship-front money fleet stood by, helpless to intervene. Trump's final salute probably simply made the whole thing worse. And secondly, there was now without a doubt a new supreme naval power in Europe, and her name was not Spain, it was not Portugal, nor England. It was the Netherlands. There were other money-raising ideas as well, and some of them met with success, such as the forced loan that Charles imposed on his privy councillors, which came up with the impressive sum of 300,000 quid. Henrietta Maria publicly demanded all Catholic lords should make donations, which in itself prompted public fears of the Queen's Catholicism. It was expected her appeal would raise tens of thousands, but in the end, 14,000 quid was your lot. 
There should then have been £200,000 from this year's ship money and more from coat and conduct money. But ship money had now definitively dried up. Even the amount still collectible was taking an age to bring in against fierce objections. And once more, the City of London had failed to deliver relief, dragged its feet over possible loans. Wentworth had persuaded the King to set up a special eight-man committee to manage Scottish affairs and Charles had agreed to do so. And now that policy of separation we talked about ages ago and the Privy Councils was completely reversed. So the Scottish committee had seven Englishmen and just one Scot, which was of course the ubiquitous Hamilton. Now on the 27th of November, the committee received Traquair and his report on how the Assembly and Parliament in Scotland had gone and they gave him a thorough roughing up for his performance. Together with the struggling money-raising campaign, this led Wentworth to make the dreaded suggestion whose name should not be spoken near the King. It began with a P and it ended with a T and it had Arliament in the middle. The argument about this idea was very fierce. Normally Lord would equally have eaten his own liver than support the idea of a Parliament, but both he and Hamilton realised that the Straits were unusually dire and supported the proposal to recall it. On the 5th of December, the proposal was put to the full Privy Council. With their star in serious decline, the Spanish party could not put up the resistance they normally would, and a historic decision was taken. Parliament must be recalled. Wentworth was now without doubt in the ascendant as Charles's right-hand man, assuming Charles, of course, wasn't left-handed. He was unofficially the King's chief minister. And then in January... Charles made his favour public. Wentworth was ennobled as the Earl of Strafford and promoted being the King's Lord Lieutenant. He had arrived. Now, all he needed to do was to steer his King to a safe harbour and he had a very clear view of how he was going to do that because he was confident he could manage the Irish Parliament to be generous. He'd done it before, after all. And given his previous success in Ireland and the excess he expected now, he was confident the same could be achieved in England, so he was very bullish. And anyway, Charles realised that without money from Parliament, he was really going to struggle to raise an army. So William Lord also went along with the general plan, but he was far from bullish. He feared that Parliament would target him specifically, and that he would be destroyed the very first day of the sitting. But look, Charles had a plan. In a foretaste of the strategy that his son would adopt in the Restoration, Charles now had the idea to use the loyalty of the Irish Parliament as an example to the English. Look over there, he would say. That, that is how a loyal people behave to their king at a time of war. He had another ace up his sleeve too, or at least he thought it was an ace. A letter from the Covenanters had been intercepted from the Covenanters to the King of France. Now, the letter was aimed to get the French king to intervene to help improve the relationship between the Covenanters and the king. But it was rather clumsily worded, and critically, it was addressed au roi to the king. Now, to Charles's mind, this was nothing short of treason, or at least he could spin it that way. Surely, they were addressing King Louis Thirteenth as their king. When this was read out to the English Parliament... He was sure that nothing could stand in the way to a wave of patriotic fury against perfidious Alba. 
Writs were issued for Parliament in Ireland for the Parliament there to meet in March, and in England they were issued for an April Parliament. The bounce in Charles's bungee was back. Wentworth. Or, well, let's call him Strafford from now on, shall we? Is that okay? Wentworth equals Strafford. Strafford equals Wentworth. Alice Carr. So Strafford approached the Parliament in Ireland with some care. It is clear, I think, why the likes of Warwick and Pym feared Strafford. He might have been an incendiary sort of bloke, good at putting people's backs up, but he was subtle. He was clever, determined. He was good at getting what he wanted. Although a pretty fierce Protestant himself, he'd become very concerned at the attitudes of the Scottish settlers in Ulster. They showed a marked support for the Covenant cause and an increasing desire to take up a Presbyterian church organisation. So he came down on them hard. For example, a Scottish gent had been fined £10,000, forced to stand in the pillory and have his tongue bored. His crime? For airing his theory that the Queen was intending to join with the French when the King was gone north against the Scotch. Hardly the world's most vile accusation. I have one further comment to make on this statement, incidentally. Not only did it demonstrate Strafford's determination to keep his subjects in line, it also uses the word Scotch to denote Scottish people. Now, it has been axiomatic all my life that you have to be careful with Scots in terms of nomenclature. I mean, calling them English is obviously a shooting offence. No questions asked, no quarter given or asked for. But calling them Scotch rather than Scottish isn't far behind. Scotch refers only to whisky, is what I understand. But look, here we are then. If you do make this egregious error and the trigger is cocked against you, simply suavely assure your potential avenging angel that you are, of course, employing 17th century usage of the word Scotch. Hopefully, that'll be so impressive, you'll be able to leave in one piece. Strafford had caused more upset, however, when he had imposed an oath of loyalty on the Scots in Ulster, requiring them to state their disapproval of the Covenant. So much was it hated that the Ulster Scots called it the Black Oath. Rather than take it, many upsticks and left for Scotland and the Covenant cause. Still, Trafford was keeping his country in line. And despite the upset he'd caused with many of his policies, yet there appeared no sign of trouble elsewhere in Ireland. There was a deal of prosperity about, and the old English were not causing trouble, partly because the old English now had an even worse enemy to worry about than Strafford. The Covenanters made Charles look like their very best buddy by comparison. If the Scottish Covenanters prevailed, that could mean real trouble for the Catholic Irish. And anyway, persistent gerrymandering meant that the Catholics now held only 74 seats in a parliament of 235 in Ireland, despite their overwhelming dominance of the population. The result, therefore, of all this was a parliamentary triumph for Strafford. Six subsidies were voted for Charles. A further six were voted by the Convocation of the Church. All of this gave the funding and permission to Wentworth to raise an army of 9,000 in Ireland to use for the King's aid. Well, when Strafford returned to England as the all-conquering hero, his stock could not be high with the King, nor his voice stronger in the Privy Council. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. 
It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Okay, so now we come to the parliament known in history as the Short Parliament. I am not going to give you any clues at all why it bears that name. As the news about the coming Parliament spread, interest and expectations were sky high after an 11-year gap. In Somerset, Edmund Phillips wrote that the news begat much joy amongst all the country people. And he threw himself and his colleagues into an election, contested for the first time in their area. They formed a mini-political party and called themselves the Robin Hoods. They did some rabble-rousing and tried to shift the incumbent Poulet family and didn't entirely manage it, but they did get one of their two candidates elected. Meanwhile, Lord Keeper Finch, that same man who'd been held weeping in the Speaker's chair in 1629, briefed all the judges that they must serve the King and support him in the problems he was facing. It is your job to break the insolence of the vulgar before it approacheth nigh the royal throne. But it is time now for me to make a confession, to bare my breast and to beat my breast, to tear my hair like a Greek hero. When I think about the English Revolution, I think at this stage of two parties trying to work towards an acceptable solution, failing to do so and therefore being forced to resort to war, which does kind of happen. But I was shocked to learn, I had no idea, that for some there were tactics and clever tricks involved that at various points a solution was not necessarily the objective. In the short parliament, there was a group of people who needed that parliament to fail in order for them to win. Now, this had never happened before. This was new. Even in those parliaments of the 1620s, everyone was trying to reach an accommodation. Parliaments were about consensus. They weren't about adversarial politics where one side wins and the other loses, which of course is what we expect of politics these days. So, who were these people that did not want peace and agreement? Well, not Charles, who is usually the one who gets blamed for the failures of Parliament. It is in fact a group of reformers, often referred to as the Junto. Now, I am breaking a golden rule here, a golden rule of chronology, because nobody called the folks the Junto in early 1640, although they would later in the year and from 1641. The term seems to have been traced back to one Edward Nicholas. Edward Nicholas was a clerk to the Privy Council, and when he wrote to a colleague in Scotland about the prospects for the forthcoming Parliament, he included the line, Mr Pym and others will not yield... But I believe Mr Pym will find few, beside those of his junto, of that opinion. Junto refers to the Spanish for an administrative council. Nicholas, a staunch royalist, was referring to a group centred around the peers Warwick and Say and Seal, Lord Brooke and the Earl of Bedford, the Warwick House group who had helped Hampton prepare for the ship money case. In 1640, they had something of a history behind them of skating on thin ice, of corresponding with the Scots, and very half-hearted support indeed for the king in the First Bishop's War. Their agenda remained the same. Religion and politics 
were inextricably intertwined. The king's power must be restrained so that when his church forms were unwound, they could not be rewound once Parliament had gone and the king's backside was batting in the driving seat and the Scots defeated. So, major concessions were needed from the king whenever this deal took place. The king would need to be forced into an agreement against his will, and to do that, a big stick was needed. Now, the only non-royal big stick in the house was held by the Covenanters with their army. They held the only coercive power. So the Junto was also the Scottish party, tied to the absolute necessity of keeping the Scots in the hunt on their side. Now, if the Covenanters were now defeated by the king, the only lever the Junto had would be gone. More years of personal rule would follow, absolute power, religious reform, and to their minds, papism would be the end point. So, the king must not win the war against the Scots. The king must not get his subsidies from Parliament because those would allow him to build a powerful army. He must fail in this Parliament and he must be forced to come back to a future Parliament once more, cap in hand. So they needed this Parliament to fail. But given what a completely alien concept this was to other people in Parliament, they could not be seen by the majority of moderate MPs, they could not be seen to be trying to make this Parliament fail. That would cause outrage against them and swing MPs behind the King. So, the Junto needed to plan their tactics carefully. The historian Conrad Russell has a lovely phrase for this, for their one only hope, the absolute requirement for them to pull off this act of smoke and mirrors. They had to hope that Charles would not prove too flexible. There's a second half to that quote, which we'll come back to um, a bit later in the episode. So they had to hope that Charles would not come to an accommodation by being flexible, that Charles would therefore seem to be the guilty party, not the junto. Charles had ranted about a small group of malignants in the 1620s in Parliament, and he'd been dead wrong. Do you know what? For those who believe fervently in the story of Charles the Martyr, now he had become dead right. Well, there's a way to go before we reach that. We need to do the elections first. Now, I believe I have mentioned that elections in England were largely selections. Selections by the great men of the county, the Butsoni, the major knights or even the magnates. Often it was a case of Buggins' turn. Oh, it's my man to be elected to Parliament this year. OK, we'll put him up. So when I say that 63 seats were the focus of contested elections, you might roll your eyes. What kind of democracy is this? You might shrug your shoulders and send whatevs emojis. But I urge you not to do that. Not to do that. There were only normally something like a dozen contested elections. 63 is mega. And bear in mind that most constituencies had more than one MP. So in the end about a quarter of the Parliament would have MPs elected by contest in 1640. And nationwide, royal candidates did very poorly. So the court nominated candidates in 38 constituencies and only three were returned elected. On the other hand, for the opposition peers, Warwick, Sayne Seal, Essex, Brook, Bedford, 
It was almost exactly the reverse. Of the 35 candidates they nominated, 32 were elected. Feelings against Laudian reforms ran high and formed a focus to the campaigns, but also there was a strong feeling against courtiers, the unreliability of the court, a feeling of country rejecting the values of the court. Expectations ran high then on all sides when Parliament assembled on the 13th of April 1640, and given the level of contested elections and the ravages of time, there were a lot of new faces in Parliament. Do not be fooled by all this talk of juntos into thinking that the new parliament was revolutionary in intent, though it might be described as irritable in intent. The large majority were not typified by John Pym, a man with an agenda, a man with no real territorial base, and therefore a man with no particular community to satisfy. A much more representative figure might be Francis Seymour, who was based and whose family had been based for a long time in one particular location. You might not remember Seymour, but you have heard his name before in the parliaments of 1626, speaking in favour of the Bill of Rights and so outspoken as to be one of those kicked upstairs to keep him out of the 1628 parliament. His concern was not to seek constitutional change nor restrict the king's freedom of action, but to re-establish the way that things had always been, the liberty of the people to that which it had been before as he saw it. So he'd refused to pay ship money in 1639, despite being hauled up in front of the Privy Council, and he'd stood firm against them. He had, against his conscience, paid that money twice, but now his conscience would suffer him no more to do a thing so contrary to law and the liberty of the subject. But on the other hand, he was a firm believer in the episcopy, and by January 1642, he would be described as one of the king's chief councillors. Following the path of people like Francis Seymour helps understand that the Junto had a tough job on their hands to shackle the king and prevent him from reversing any reforms that they might gain. Nonetheless, Pym did have around him in the Commons a few allies from the 1620s who shared his views, and then there were other MPs who might be persuadable. In the first category were the likes of John Hamden, Oliver St. John, William Strode, who had been part of the 1629 protest and only now in January 1640 had been released from prison for his sins. There was William Earl, one of the five knights who'd been imprisoned for refusing to pay forced loans. But then there were new faces who might be persuadable, such as Henry Martin, sitting with his father as MP for Berkshire, Martin had refused ship money but was not at this time an obvious radical and he made no speeches in this parliament. In fact, he was known as a bit of a rake and a hell-raiser in addition to his main occupation as farmer. He'd already had a run-in with the king at the races in Hyde Park. The king had seen him. The king had heard of his reputation and contemptuously dismissed him as John Aubrey related. Let that ugly rascal be gone out of the park, that whoremaster, or else I will not see the sport. So Henry went away patiently, said manibat alta mente repostum, but it lay stored up deep within his heart. Another persuadable was Harry Vane, the younger, who was a real religious radical and inclined to religious toleration for all Protestants newly returned from New England, where he'd served for a while as governor. He was the son of Henry Vane the Elder, who would serve the king as Secretary of State. 
The elder was described as a prosperous official, well-satisfied and composed to the government. For the moment in the short parliament, even Martin and both younger and elder Vane, though, could go either way. Now, Charles was nervous about his stammer and so did not like making long speeches. And so it was Lord Keeper Finch who made the opening address. And this was unfortunate. This was unfortunate for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because Finch had become very associated with the strip money judgment, and not in a good way, he being one of those who had vehemently supported the king. The other problem was the tone of the speech, presumably set by the king, to be fair. The tone really pushed the boat out of royal authority into midstream and down the rapids of hyperbole and the whirlpool of supremacy. He set the king's divine right sky high. He demanded an unconditional and generous grant of subsidies warned against any idea that the king was looking for counsel, because he wasn't. That wasn't for oiks in the commons whose job it was simply to provide the wherewithal for the king's arcane mysteries. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And no one was to question his policy to squash the Scots who were guilty of foul and horrid treason. That last bit to quote, actually. Only at that point would the king graciously consent to look at his subjects' grievances. As he spoke, you can imagine the junto all relaxing happily back into their seats. It wasn't sounding as though flexible Charles had come to the party. Nothing to worry about. Charles did then get up and speak, though briefly. He decided to go hard and early on his bombshell, the letter from the Covenanters to Louis XIII with the famous Au Roi appellation. Sadly, there was not uproar from Parliament, and most sitting there seemed to have thought that the idea that the Covenanters were proposing Louis XIII to be King of Scotland to be an utter absurdity. Anyway, off the Commons trooped to the cramped surroundings of St Stephen's Church. There followed a few speeches on that first day in the Commons, which would not have pleased Charles. Francis Seymour spoke in the style of 1629, not focusing on the subsidies for the Scots, not focusing on the need for subsidies to fight the Scots, but focusing on bad government and blaming the King's ministers. Though the King be never so just... His bad ministers may corrupt justice. Then there rose a man who gloried in the name of Harbottle Grimston, which definitely sounds like a teacher of charms and hexes at Hogwarts School of Magic and Wizardry. Harbottle took the view that before subsidies could be dealt with, there was a case here at home of as great a danger, and to cure an ulcerous body you must first cleanse the veins. An unpleasant image, cleansing the veins. How would you do that? God is not my GP. But the point was not missed. Charity begins at home, I suppose my granny would have said. Take the plank out of your own eye before you take the moat out of anyone else's. But the real scene-setter was the next day when the junto made its pitch, through the mouth of John Pym. This would be when Pym came into his own, the start of his rise to King Pym status. As far as most of Parliament was concerned, this rise would be rather unexpected. But in truth, there were few of the old guard of 1629 left, and it was this that gave Pym the room to lead the charge of reform in Parliament. 
Now, Payne was not the greatest speaker in the world. Worthy but dull, I think might be the phrase. And when he rose on the 14th of April to address a Pax St Stephen's, he broke a tradition of the house by speaking from notes. Not a man to speak off the cuff. Not a man for the witty cut and thrust of repartee, our John Pym. Thomas Payton described the occasion. An ancient and stout man of Parliament that ever zealously affected the good of his country. He left nothing untouched. Ship money. Forest, knighthood, recusants, monopolies, the present inclination of our church to popery. And in the close, desired the lower house to move the upper in a humble request that they be pleased to join with them in a petition to the king for redress of all grievances. What Thomas didn't mention is that the speech was two hours long and bore all the signs of having been carefully prepared so that it could be copied and distributed on the streets. Not printed. If it was printed, it would have to go to the censor, and good luck with getting that past the king. Pin complained that the liberties of the house had been transgressed at the last parliament all those years ago, and this must be redressed before subsidies could even be considered. Pym's speech captured the agenda. A committee of the full house was a neat convention that allowed debate away from the beady eye of the king's lackey, the speaker. As they debated the injustice of the dissolution of 1629 without its grievances having been dealt with, Charles's temperature rose. It is clear Charles had not learnt much over the last 11 years. A parlement à sa mode was the only parliament he had in mind. And so a royal summons was sent to bring both houses to Whitehall. After they'd all shuffled in like naughty schoolboys, they received a lecture from Finch again. A lecture that money was needed and needed now, and that the army of 15,000 being assembled was already costing 100,000 a month to get on with it. And he managed to drop into the speech the king's second ace in the hole. The exemplary behaviour of the Irish Parliament. That went down every bit as well as the first ace in the hole. Essentially, Charles had yielded to advice to call a parliament, but he was not prepared to pay the price for a successful one. More debate followed. Very few of the Commons MPs, even those who would fight for the king in a couple of years' time, none of them could conceive of going back to their countries with a larger subsidy than ever asked for before, with no answer to the grievances their communities had expressed. However well disposed for the king... They just could not do it. What would they say? The king had given them nothing. Meanwhile, a tranche of petitions from a number of home counties arrived in Parliament complaining of the very issues Pym had raised. Middlesex, Essex, Suffolk, Norwich, Northamptonshire, Northampton. All oddly contiguous and connected with Junto peers. Now this was spookily helpful. So spookily, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that this was the Junto's work, that the protests to Parliament were no more spontaneous and off-the-cuff than the prayer book protests of the Covenanters had been. However, just like the Covenanters, they may have been organised, but the grievances were real. They weren't made up. These were the real concerns of the people. In the end, they agreed with Pym's suggestion to send a request to the Lords for a conference together. The Speaker brought his report back to Charles at Whitehall. Picture the scene, if you will, with me. There's the King, humble servant, coming in. Speak, humble servant. 
Well, your madge, those horrid and foolish MPs said, till the liberties of the house and kingdom were cleared, they knew not whether they had anything to give or no. Charles ordered an immediate late-night emergency meeting of the Privy Council. When his advisers were assembled, he angrily proposed an immediate dissolution of the House. Strafford said, whoa, hang on. Why not meet with your besties, the House of Lords, and get them to talk the Commons round? They're PLUs. They'll see sense. And so it was, the following day, that the House of Lords met with their King speaking for himself this time. Charles asked them to press the Commons to pony up immediately. For Parliament to delay was essentially to deny. Well, that didn't quite go as planned. Say and Seal, for example, insisted that voting supply was none of the Lord's business, that was purely the other place. Strafford demanded loyalty to their King. Say and Seal stood his ground. Eventually, all 68 lay peers voted. 25 of them voted against the motion. Well, the decision put the cat amongst the ferrets, because the following day the Commons took umbrage at the Lords' intervention and they told the Lords that supply was none of their business, so the Lords in turn took umbrage right back and said it jolly well did concern them. Parliament, frankly, was by now awash with umbrages, couldn't move for tripping over an umbrage. Strafford had succeeded in sowing dissent between the houses, but was no closer to the King's objective. On Saturday the 1st of May, Secretary Henry Vane the Elder told the Commons an answer was demanded today on supply. Without doubt now, the Commons knew that they worked under the threat of immediate dissolution. And they promised a response on Monday. Charles and his Privy Council put their heads together and then that Monday morning at eight o'clock, as the House assembled, Henry Vane appeared again. And Henry Vane took, at last, a deal to the Commons. A concession. In return for 12 subsidies, yes, that's 12 subsidies, the King would drop ship money. Well, it's something, but it's not much to give up in practical terms. Ship money had by now gone the way of all flesh. No one was paying it anymore. But I suppose it was something that MPs could take back to their constituents, some sort of kipper. But there was nothing there about liberties or religion. It was thin gruel. Debate dragged on until lunchtime arrived. It dragged on until tea time arrived. It dragged on until six in the evening. Still there was no vote. Worse, two speakers actually dared to stand up and speak against having any war against the Scots at all. Well, that was it. To dare to speak against such a righteous war against those confounded traitors. There was a loud snap as the camel's back broke. It was a royal camel. Even worse, an ill wind had blown a rumour onto Charles's desk that Pym had been talking to the Scotch commissioners about formally presenting the Scots' grievances to the House the following day. Bang! Parliament was dissolved. In the confusion and chaos, the King got the offices of Say, Brooke, Pym, Earl and Hamden searched for incriminating pa papers of treason with the Scots, another flouting of parliamentary privilege. They found nothing. Well, that was that. 
The failure of the short parliament was, even in the context of the fractious parliaments of the 1620s, very fast indeed. Hence the name, of course. A big part of the reason this was that the king felt he was on a schedule. Every moment of delay meant the Covenanters grew in strength and permanence. But Richard Cust makes the interesting reflection that he's also a consequence of the personal rule. For 11 years, Charles had driven the ship all on his own with his loyal privy councillors. So they'd become much less receptive to the concerns of the political nation than they once had been when they had to go and speak and square things with Parliament. Added to Charles's view that it was his conscience, his honour and his judgement that mattered, and that negotiation was not a matter for subjects anyway, well, the Parliament was doomed. The question has been raised by historians, though. Had Charles just missed the last chance for a peaceful settlement with a minimum of concessions. After all, as time would tell, the next Parliament would be a good deal more bloody-minded and radical than this one. But it seems to me to be a non-question, really. Charles would have to have been a different person. He still no doubt hoped against hope that he could do better militarily this next time. Maybe he could if he was quick. Whether or not the Junto had tried to nix Parliament, and it almost certainly had, had been made a bit irrelevant. Charles did nothing to make it work. He was nowhere close to making the level of concessions required to get a good solution for him. But it would have been a lot cheaper and saved a lot of lives if he had. Let's finish with the rest of that Conrad Russell quote, shall we, about the Junto. They had to hope that Charles would not prove too flexible. And not for the first time. He did everything they could have hoped from him. For the Junto, everything had gone exactly as they hoped and planned. All they had to hope now was that Charles's military skills could not snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Next week, gentle listeners, all we will hear about the Bishop's War, the second of that ilk. Can Charles pull it off against all the odds? Tune in next time. Meanwhile, I need to thank all of you very much for listening, for getting in touch with thoughts and comments, and especially my beloved members. Good luck, everyone. Keep your fingers crossed for Charles and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 